Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. Today, it's the new dynamic duo. <laughs> well, I'm here with Wesley Huff. It's our first time, first Troy and Wes podcast together. That's that's right. This sounds like a... This could be a very dangerous situation. I, I don't know if the other guys are going to want to come back because the job we are going to do today is going to be exceptional. And the question is, will the audience let them come back or have they just reached the... The, the pivotal point of podcast listening in the history of the AC podcast. We'll hang their jersey in the rafters somewhere. <laughs> I don't, right. My place doesn't have rafters. Mine neither. <laughs> there are no rafters in a condo. So uh, we'll find some rafters uh, and we'll hang, we'll make a jersey and we'll hang those jerseys. There we go. Actually, that'd be kind of cool. AC podcast jerseys. <laughs> but then we're going to have to do some kind of intramural sports. So this could take a turn. <laughs> well, today... We, we want to get into uh, a topic that is, is swimming around. And if you're someone like me, you, you see things that are going on in the news, but sometimes don't know how to react to it because uh, unless you're looking at multiple sources and really taking a deep dive into um, not just what is being presented, but also the historical ramifications to some of the things that we see every day, it can be really confusing and really overwhelming. But as a believer, based on the situation, it can really tug on some biblical principles and ethical conversations. And so today we're going to get into this topic about what is going on in, in Afghanistan. It's, it's everywhere in the news. Everyone is talking about it. And we wanted to take some time uh, at AC and really approach it from a conversation standpoint you know, and so I'm really wanting to pull on our our dear friend Wes here and his um, understanding of of the, the the Afghan conflict, so to speak. So Wes, let's uh, let's get into this. If for for the lay person, um, person who may not be l- paying attention to the news, mm-hmm. what is going on in Afghanistan right now? Well, there's a lot going on in Afghanistan uh, right now. A lot of it is related to the fact that President Biden announced and then initiated that the American military presence would be pulled out of Afghanistan. Um, that American presence has been there for 20 years. It started as part of the war on terror after 9-11. And uh, I think if you look at the, the original effort, the original goal, it was basically in the way that I understand it, to squash an extremist terrorist presence in places like Afghanistan. So uh, Afghanistan, for those who don't know, it's a landlocked country in uh, Central South Asia. It's bordered by Pakistan to the east, Iran to the west, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan to the north, and then China to the northeast. And if you think about it uh, geographically, I mean, it's, it's hard to figure out, you know, what where these countries are and even how big they are it's approximately the size of Saskatchewan they're pretty much wow. the same size uh Saskatchewan uh when i googled it before we started talking google tells me that it's 651,000 square kilometers which is almost exactly how big afghanistan is uh, afghanistan is 652,000 square kilometers wow. so they're they're comparative in size and so it's it's a good chunk of land, and uh, mm-hmm. Afghanistan has it has a long and very very scattered history in terms of who was running the country, 
who's been in charge. It, it was part of during the Soviet era, part of kind of that USSR uh, strategic location. You know, all of these, a lot of those Stan countries that were mentioned, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, were part of the Soviet Union in, in, in different eras at different periods of time and in, in different ways. And the region of Afghanistan kind of got caught in the middle of that. And so there were various tribal groups that fought against the Soviets for power. The Soviet Union uh, intervened in Afghanistan in, in 1979 and there was pushback. And part of the struggle was that there, there appears to have been funding from the United States to various groups within the, the Afghan region to, to fight the Soviets. And so there, there was, if you want to label it as U.S. intervention, there was U.S. intervention pretty early on. And, and that was, you know, political and strategic as, as part of the, uh, the Cold War. And so this created a, a situation that eventually led to, you know, there being armed combatants in the tribal regions of Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is a really tricky place because it's so the the geographical outlay is so hilly that it's it's hard for any one group to establish control at any one point in time. Right. And I don't think we really understand. There are a few actually uh, movies that cover, you know, uh, war movies that cover uh, Desert Storm and the war in Afghanistan that do a good job of portraying this. But it's hard to imagine that the hilly regions, the mountainous regions, are they're hard for any military force to just control. And so that's one of the reasons why even the United States has had trouble over the last 20 years in their presence there, just establishing bases and uh, a foothold. Right. And what we're talking about right now is the fact that U.S. troops are pulling out and the Taliban, who have largely been held at bay for the last 20 years, they're rushing in and they're retaking control of our, all these areas. And uh, the Taliban, in terms of who they are, are a they're an Islamist extreme, extremist group. So the reason they're called the Taliban is due to the right. fact that they're students. The Arabic word for student is Talib. Oh, okay. okay. And Pashto, which is the language that's spoken primarily in Afghanistan, uh, sort of borrows that word and then has a has a Pashto suffix on the end and pluralizes it. The Taliban are are students, and they're called that because they were known as students of strict Islamic law from the Pashtun area of eastern and, and southern Afghanistan, and they were. Uh, unified in a small group. It started with just 50 individuals really? who saw themselves as, as soldier scholars, uh, scholars of traditional Islamic teaching. Their founder, a guy, a guy named Mullah Muhammad Omar, he was basically unhappy with the lack of nationally enforced Islamic law across the country following the, the Soviet era. So they, they gained a, a following. And part of it was just, you know, the region was so disenfranchised after Soviet rule that young men wanted to fight for something mm. and they wanted to establish some sort of normalcy. And uh, that vacuum provided a, uh, an opportunity for, for this group to go in and recruit and establish what basically eventually uh, ended up being um, uh, a military Islamic run 
governments, although government is not a good way of, of putting it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's very tribal. Yeah. It's very tribal. This whole region is is very tribal, which is something us in the West have, have a hard time understanding because we don't have that same sort of yeah. worldview perspective. Well, I guess my you know, question about it is how then if this if they started as such a small group, how did they manage to grow to power and then eventually, like we're seeing, completely overthrow what we would, you know, know as their government? Like, mm. you, you know, you see how their soldiers are basically outnumbered or they're quitting or the entire reason the United States was there as, and, and as well as some Canadian soldiers was because they needed additional military presence and so how does something like that happen where you have an extremist group seemingly be the majority and then the actual nation of afghanistan doesn't have a military force that can fight against something like that yeah well i think historically after the soviet union intervened and occupied afghanistan in 1979 um there were these individuals these fighters known as the mujahideen uh, who engaged in the war with the Soviets. And nearly all of the Taliban's original leadership previously fought in the Soviet-Afghan war wow. from the various militant groups, including but not limited to the Mujahideen. And so after the fall of the Soviet-backed regime in Afghanistan, there was a, a civil war that went on from 1992 to 1996. And from 1996 to 2001, the group that established the most control out of all of these other militant groups was the group that we we end up calling the Taliban. Now, they don't call themselves the Taliban. Oh, okay. They refer to themselves as the Islamic em Emirates of Afghanistan, the IEA. Okay. Um, That's way more regal. <laughs> it is. It is. And uh, I mean, I don't think uh, there was a period of time where I think Pakistan was recognizing the IAE as such, but uh, there was such a lack of control. It really was kind of know a, a guerrilla warfare military-led group mm. uh that nobody especially the un was recognizing them as an established country right and part of that was that the field of islamic law known as sharia that they sort of their interpretation of sharia law is very very strict okay. and and very very oppressive right and so Right off the bat, you have what well, I mean, I think we would consider human rights violations, right. um, particularly in regards to women and women's roles and what they're allowed to do. And so after the American led invasion of Afghanistan in, in December 2001, following September 11th, the Taliban lost a majority of the control. But before that, really all through the 90s or the late middle to late 90s and into the early 2000s, they held control of three quarters of Afghanistan. Wow. Uh, they'd established that much power. Mm. Um, and and a lot of that was just the, the various tribes being unified mm -hmm. under, you know, the, the leadership of particular individuals who fought in the war. And I think part of the answer to your question, Troy, is that when there is a vacuum and people step in, charismatic individuals step in, uh, other people follow. Right. And so and, and particularly with their military tactics, I mean, one of the reasons you see um, and recently Biden, when he was asked, you know, could the Taliban take over? He said, you know, it's an impossibility because there are 300,000 Afghan soldiers that have been equipped and there are only about 75,000 Taliban fighters. And I think part of the problem with that kind of perspective was that 
the tactics that the Taliban use, they're not going by the typical rules of war. Mm. Uh, when you have individuals who are willing to strap a bomb vest to themselves and drive into a crowded area of civilians, yeah. really the the rules are at the window. Right. And so that's, that's hard <laughs> to deal with. And yeah. I think... Um, I think part of the en masse uh, giving up of of arms that we've seen with the Afghan army is that they they just don't know how to deal with mm. with that. And uh, yeah, they've been trained over the last twenty years, but th- there's a lot of trickiness to fighting guerrilla style warfare. Right. It's such an an interesting situation to look at. You know, I've I've never had an interest in in being in the military or anything like that. But there was a period of time where the idea of being in law enforcement, just the idea of it, mm. was was somewhat intriguing. But even right. w- in regards to that, there's a level of sacrifices that are made to do something like that. It's not just like, oh, I get a cool uniform and a gun, and I'm gonna go go save the world. And you know, you see sometimes like within the church, there's a lot of there's this underlying question of ethics that comes up and Christian ethics, like, well, you're going over to a whole other country and you're going to have to kill somebody, somebody you don't know. Mm. You may have to take someone else's life. And, you know, I don't think I've ever really sat with that conversation long enough just simply because I've not been in that situation. But when you look at, you know, look at it from this angle, it's like human rights violations and and you can also understand a person who is so compelled to go help somebody else. There's this dance between what may be a doctrinal belief or a personal conviction. And where do the lines get blurred and and, and those sorts of things. And so it's it's very, I think, I, I would say for myself, it's been very challenging really looking at this scenario for what it is. Because my heart goes out to the people of Afghanistan to my friends who are from Afghanistan who are now Canadians and are living here or at the very least are landed immigrants. And I, and you say to yourself, well, what do we do? Like what? There's gotta be another way. Yeah. Yeah. Asking the easy questions, right? Try, you know, just war versus pacifism. (laughs) What's the answer to that? Right. Um, Right. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. It's a valid question. I think there it's a question that Christians have been asking for years. <laughs> since the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, you do have that. If you pour out the substance of Christianity, you do have love those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also have Jesus telling his disciples to go by swords. <laughs> right. You, <laughs> so you have the Old Testament. Yourself. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I don't, I, I don't think there's uh, necessarily a, a, a straightforward answer. I think for a long time within Christian history, uh, Christians did not participate in war. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the time you get to Augustine in the fourth century, you have this development of what's referred to as just war theory, because there were just too many Christians (laughs) in the Roman empire. And um, there were wars going on and there was questions, you know, should you fight for peace? Mm. Uh, If people are being subjugated and disenfranchised, as a believer, as someone who believes in injustice and what is right, yeah. um, should you participate in that? And I think there are valid arguments on both sides. I mean, 
personally, I'm more on the just war perspective than I am on the pacifism perspective, right. but I get it. I, I totally get. And I think there's there's more than enough biblical warrant um, for both. And I think, especially when you're talking about a time and a period right now where we live in a, a global community and you do, you know, we know so much about countries like Yemen and Afghanistan, North Korea, and where real evil mm. is being done. And I think there are legitimate questions about saying, when is it proper to step in? When is it proper to intervene? When is it proper to help right. people who, and especially a lot of these countries that have Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a Christian presence in Afghanistan. There's a Christian presence in North Korea and in China and in Yemen and in Darfur and all these countries that struggle. And... Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have a, no, a straightforward answer. No, no, of course um, not. Because I, I, cause I think about it like this. I remember, oh man, it's probably been out for at least 10 years, maybe coming close to 10 years. There's a, there a movie called The Shotgun Preacher, right? Hmm. And so to give people a snapshot of what The Shotgun Preacher was, there is this guy who, I, I don't think he was military, maybe he was ex-military, but there was a story of a, of a group of, I believe it was young ladies at a school and there was a terrorist presence in in another country and no one had a way of of getting to them or or getting getting them out because everyone else was was military marked and so they knew all those people but he felt so compelled after now finding his faith in Christ that he needed to do something and so he basically mm. you know the the movie's pretty epic it's got the guy from 300 you know, so he's just there's these epic scenes where he's like quoting the scriptures as he's blasting a guy away. But there's a moment in the movie that really ch- like challenged my perspective uh, and makes you stop and think because he he comes back and people are saying, I get what you're doing. But how can you on go on Saturday, go and kill all these people and then come and preach on Sunday? And he said, mm. if I could if your children were kidnapped and stolen. And I could, and I told you I could get them back. Would you really argue with me about my method? Whoa! So I sit there and I look at things like that. And I'm like, okay, this is definitely something that we are constantly going to be wrestling with. But there's still there's still a response that can be made from believers, and mm. you know, naturally. My thought is like, well, the first one has to be prayer. Like, Lord, what does the common person who is seeing this and is burdened by this do? And it's yeah. weird, but if we're being honest, sometimes prayer doesn't feel like enough. It should be, but. Yeah. What I hear you saying is that we just need to send Gerard Butler yeah. and maybe Sylvester Stallone into. Uh... <laughs> no, no, no. In, in all seriousness, I think, I mean, you can understand some of that even though you know that that was a a dramatization in a film Mm -hmm. Um, but you have imprecatory psalms yeah right why is psalm 137 9 happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks Mm. why is that in scripture well it's because it's because you have you know those types of things being done by the enemies of god's people Mm. and the psalmist is just so outraged yeah by the evil and injustice that they're saying you know may justice be done against people who do do these types of things yeah there is that very candid very honest expression within within scripture um 
And, and I totally get what you're saying in terms of, of prayer. Sometimes prayer feels very empty. Mm -hmm. Um, and that may say more about, you know, our own hearts. True. Um, I think we can, we can understand that prayer needs to be our first line of attack, but sometimes that can feel like we, you know, we need to be doing something, but I think realistically, uh, God tells us time and time again through throughout scripture, you know, pray without ceasing yeah, and be lifting your brothers up. You know, a, a couple of Sundays ago, I preached at our church uh, on um, Hebrews and the passage was about, you know, uh, um, for those who are in prison, act as if, you know, you too are in prison. Mm. Um, the, those who are bound in chains is actually the, the phrase in Greek. And I preached a little bit about on the persecuted church globally and the fact that there are Christians, brothers and sisters. And how do we do that? Because we're struggling between this juxtaposition of the global church is both rejoicing mm-hmm. and mourning. Yeah. Because there are so many around the world who, you know, so much of the kingdom is growing and God is doing amazing things at the exact same time. There are Christians in Afghanistan who being a Christian means that, you know, you you could be killed and and your 14 year old daughter could be taken as a as one of multiple wives of a of a taliban soldier like that's a that's a heavy yeah reality and i think here here are just a couple of ways i think for the the listener that we can pray for afghanistan um right now that, that I, I i was writing down uh, over the weekend as i was just reading news articles and feeling overwhelmed yeah. um about these things you know i think First and foremost, we can pray for boldness. Mm. Um, we can pray, and I've just been looking at in Acts 4, you have Peter and John, they've been put on trial, and they come back to the church community. And uh, in Acts 4.29, it says, this is the prayer that the Christians were praying. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. You know, I, I think we need to be repeating prayers like that that the early church was giving. Absolutely. You know, that there were many who were uttering threats against the apostles and against the early Christians. And their prayer is, allow your servants to speak with great boldness. Yeah. I think that can be convicting to us uh, who, you know, are across the world. And yet there are missionaries, there are pastors, there are individuals who are who are in Afghanistan. So I, I think that the first way that I would say we can pray is we can pray for boldness. The second is we can pray for protection. Yeah. You know, many missionaries, pastors and leaders, they're trapped and they're not able to get out. It's just and, not a reality. The airports are closed. And there's some who are making the choice not to. Yeah, definitely. Um and uh you know, heaven authorized two jailbreaks in the book of Acts. Amen. <laughs> you know, it's 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 not impossible, yeah, right? That's right. And I think we can pray for divine intervention. Mm-hmm. I think that's completely appropriate for uh, heavenly and angelic interventions right now. Yeah. You know, pray for Saul um, to Paul encounters for the Taliban. Yeah. You know, th- w- these people are not outside of, of the, the, the sovereignty of God. And we need to pray for both those who are being persecuted and for the persecutors, you know, because even though, you know, many people are being 
taken and enslaved by the Taliban. The Taliban are enslaved themselves. Mm. They're enslaved to a religious ideology. They're enslaved to sin. They're enslaved to lust. And realistically, in speaking to the religious motivations of the Taliban, they're enslaved on a treadmill of religion. Yeah. That's what Islam is. It's a treadmill of religion. And we need to pray. We need to pray for the protection of believers and um, innocent bystanders. And we need to pray for there to be, you know, road to Damascus experiences Amen. that are, is, is completely possible. Um, so like I said, pray for boldness, pray for protection. And uh, the third, I would say, is pray for unity. Yeah. Pray for the church here in Canada and the world to be united in prayer and support for the believers in Afghanistan. Mm. This is not a partisan or political issue. This is a kingdom issue. That's right. And and so um, whether you think you know the U.S. should have been in Afghanistan or not, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant right now. Yeah. What's going on? Although there's a lot of politics behind it. Although you know we're hearing a lot of politics in the media. Right now, what's going on goes. It's no, it's no less than political, but it's so much more than political. Yeah, it's it's a kingdom issue, and so we need to be praying for the unity of the church to be lifting up in in supplication um, the believers and and the people there, and pray for revival. Mm -hmm. Pray that the underground church would continue to grow. You know, there hasn't been, uh, as far as I'm aware of, as far as I, everything I read, an established church building in Afghanistan, but there were countless house churches. Mm. I mean, I knew missionaries who were in Afghanistan. Yeah. And so the Christian presence, the the big C church was and is there. And so we need to pray for those underground believers that that would grow and expand in these days. You know, we need to pray for fresh waves of revival yeah. across not just Afghanistan, but across the Middle East. Um, there's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of struggle across the Middle East. And the testimonies of that and how that impacts our, our Western world. You know, when you start right. seeing a revival in a nation that you really are persecuted for even uttering the name of Christ, it really puts things into perspective for us. In a lot of ways, the Western world, we are, we are very spoiled. We are, we are very spoiled. And we are quick to jump to... Uh, uh, some, some deep idea of persecution, whereas there may be more of inconveniences than, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm not saying that there's no persecution in Canada against the church. There absolutely is. There has to be. But yeah, in that, in that, that realm of prayer, I'm reminded of that, that steadfast praying from Daniel. Um, mm -hmm. And now the angel actually told him how much his continuous prayer benefited him in Daniel 10, uh, 12 to 14 says, then he said to me, do not fear Daniel for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have, mm. and I have come because of your words, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I had been left alone there with the Kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days for the vision refers to many days yet to come. And so there, there's mm -hmm. really so much there, but it's just that the, the reality that prayer sends angels to flight, but we have to remember there is going to be opposition. 
And even when, you know, the, the breakthrough seemed to come, the angel says, there's still more work after this, right? It's like, oh, the angel's here. Oh, thank goodness. It's like, no, there's still more work to do. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's just, I think that's just it, is it's not so much a matter of, Lord, go do that thing. But it's like seeing that what we do on our soil actually directly impacts overseas. If we're not, if like you said, if we're not praying with intentionality, if we're not even raising up our, our children to really understand the, the power of prayer and that prayer has no border, mm. I think we're going to see the Western world really start to have our own um, revival, but it's going to be a revival that has less to do with just us and us building yeah. our kingdom and our and our buildings and our facilities and our programs. It's going to be, Lord, what happens to them in Afghanistan happens to us here. You know, there's this take it personal mentality. I mean, you're you're an athlete, right? And so in, in team sports, what's the every good coach's motto? When you win, we all win. Mm. If one of us, if we, if we lose, we all lose. It's not just one individual. Well, and the, there's an aspect of of that verse that I quoted earlier from Hebrews. Remember those who are in prison, as though in you were in prison with them. Yeah. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a play on words in the original language there, with the since you are also in the body. It could mean one of two things, or actually, I think it's a combination of both things. The body could be the body of Christ, mm. which, you know, the global church. Yep. But it also could mean, you know, since you are also a, f- a physical being, yeah. since you are also flesh and blood and you understand your finality. Yeah. And since you understand that you are a creature and you are weak and you are vulnerable, you can empathize yep. with those who are in prison yeah. because they too are weak and vulnerable and you're just and capable so, of being there <laughs> yeah definitely definitely and i think i think we often forget that you know we have so much comfort and there's so much to be thankful for yeah um here in canada of you know the comfort and the freedoms and and like you said it's not perfect mm-hmm. But uh, we need to be aware of that. And I guess the, the my, my add-on um, to, you know, what we can pray for is we can pray that God would be glorified. Yeah. Um, he is the ruler of heaven and earth. The, the preface to the Great Commission was, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. You know, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. No power or evil on the earth can match that. Mm-hmm. And we need to pray that God would be glorified, especially while... The world watches. Yeah, there's a, a Dutch theologian, um, Abraham Kuyper, and he has this famous saying: "There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine." Jeez, that's so good. And so I, I think we need to remember that. You know, um, what's Afghanistan belongs to the Lord, and he he's in control. We might. We might not understand what's going on, mm-hmm. um, but uh, when God's people pray, God moves. That's right. You know, th- that doesn't mean that God is not sovereign over the situations, but, you know, when the, when the prophet prays in the Old Testament for rain, mm. God gives rain. Yep. And God uses the means of the, the prayers of the prophet to bring rain. Yeah. And God uses the means of his people here and now praying for Afghanistan. Yeah. If we're really paying attention— it all points to Christ. 
It really, it really does because in, in Matthew 24, it, he is not alluding to something that should really surprise us. But what he's saying is that it has to get darker first. In Matthew 24, 6, it says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. These things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. And I find it just so interesting how Haiti just got hit by one. Just, mm-hmm. just as we're seeing the, you know, the the resurgence of uh, the the Taliban in in Afghanistan. Both of these things are biblically accurate, and so I the church can't be surprised, right? That, that's why listeners were saying today the emphasis has to be on prayer. And so if you're sitting there and you're burdened by this, and you're sitting on your couch and you're just wondering what do I what do I do? That that is your time, you know. Choose a period of time where I'm going to commit to praying. I'm going to commit to fasting for the people in Afghanistan, for our country, for the world Mm -hmm. leaders, that God would move in the hearts of even those who may not claim him, because the Lord has has established those people and can use them for his purpose, and is going to use them for his purpose. We may not like the way it looks all the time, but that's what you can be doing. It's not a. It's not something we turn a blind eye to. Mm. Yeah. While you were talking, it reminded me. There's a. There's a character in church history. Uh, one of the early church leaders, a guy named Polycarp, who wrote a letter, literally while he was being carted off <laughs> to be to be killed, and uh, he's recorded as saying, "80 and six years I have served him," talking about Jesus, and he has done me no wrong, saying being asked to deny Christ yeah. and saying, you know, I've served him for 80 years and he's never done me wrong. Why in this moment would I ever decide yeah. that that was not enough? Yeah. And, you know, these were individuals and there's a whole list of them in the early church, Polycarp, Ignatius, you know, even Peter and Paul, right? Martyred in Rome. Though you slay me, you know, though mm-hmm. he slay me, I will hope in him. I will still defend my ways to his face. I, right. Man. And I think that that's important for us to remember is that, you know, the normative position for Christians over the last 2,000 years has not been the peace and prosperity that, that we experience here in Canada. Mm. It, it just hasn't. And we can, we can be, you know, uh, complacent into almost a comatose state and just assuming this is the norm, this is what we're owed, this is yeah. what we deserve. And like I said before, there's a lot to glorify God yes. and be, be grateful for. Yeah. As we come to a close here, there's just one thing I wanted to add. It's just, it's important that we as the church also don't gaslight persecution. Mm. We don't ignore the different challenges that the Western church does have. There is levels of persecution here in the Western world. There are communities that are having a hard time getting funding because they're Christians. There are organizations that are having a very hard time getting funding because they are Christians. And no, we, we, we don't have a gun to our head, but it is, it is a, a persecution to a certain degree. But it, it is also important to allow the Lord to put things into perspective. Allow him, it's not a comparative thing, but it's more of a compassion thing. And it's an opportunity for us, as we've been talking about, to unify the body and be praying. It's a common analogy of you bring water to the house that's on fire. 
It doesn't mean your house doesn't matter. It doesn't mean your house doesn't have value. It's just that it's not in flames. And so if you have a means of bringing a bucket of water, bringing a prayer, doesn't need to be elaborate. Just take a moment every time it kind of comes across your mind and just pray for the people of Afghanistan. Pray for the nation of Afghanistan because there are thousands of people, as you may have seen some of the horrific images that were in desperation climbing on a plane to try and get out of the country. People falling from the plane that was in the air in a desperate attempt to get out of Afghanistan. So pray for the nation of Afghanistan. We hope that today was informative. Thank you, Wes, for laying out a, a lot of what you're talking about in, in regards to this conflict historically and in currently as, <laughs> as best you could. Such a multi-layered conversation. I know for me that it was very insightful. Um, so thank you guys so much for joining us on the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. And as such, make sure you like and subscribe on all of your streaming platforms so that you never miss an episode. Tune in next week as we find more things to think about. And as always, love God, love people. Bye for now. <laughs>